Our first scripture reading this morning is from the 62nd chapter of Isaiah, found on page 651 in the Old Testament of your Pew Bible. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest, until her vindication shines out like the dawn, and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication, and all the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word.
Samuel Coleridge Taylor, see uh, a ranger of that spiritual. Uh, he was known as the African Mahler when he toured the United States around the turn of the last century. African Mahler was the honor that they gave him, and he uh, was an amazing, prolific composer. John, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you've kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The Gospel of the Lord. Let us pray. Open our hearts to receive your word. And all the distractions and noise all of the busyness of this world be hushed, for you have the words of eternal life. Amen. As a pastor, I want to begin with a confession. I really don't like weddings. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. It's not that I don't like weddings as a person. I don't like weddings as a pastor. I'm just not a big fan on the other hand, as a pastor, I love funerals. And again, don't misunderstand. As a person, I don't enjoy funerals. That would be kind of weird. But as a pastor, I would rather do a dozen funerals than one wedding. The problem is that when it comes to funerals, expectations are clear. The responsibility of the funeral is to get the deceased where they need to go and the living where they need to be. And there's room at God for God at a funeral. In fact, even the most secular agnostic wants to hear something about love and eternity and grace and hope. But at a wedding, what are the expectations at a wedding? Who is the constituency being served here? Now, I know, I know, it's the bride's big day. But i got to tell you, that puts an incredible amount of pressure on the bride. All of a sudden, she has to have a definitive opinion on the color, the width, the shape of the bows to be placed on the back of the chair covers of the reception venue. It's an outrageous amount of pressure. Funerals, on the other hand, I am usually the second or third person to be informed. Pastor, are you available? So-and-so has died. This is the date the family would like, but if you have another time, that's better. That never happens for a wedding. For most weddings, the minister is maybe 12 or 14 down on the list of people to call. All of the other allied trade groups have been booked. 
That's one of the reasons for premarital counseling has become just kind of a waste of time or at least awkward. By the time the couple is sitting in my office letting me know they want to get married, they've already shelled out several thousand dollars for deposits for everything from the DJ to the photographer to the person who delivers the organically sourced biodegradable balloons filled with an environmentally sustainable helium gas alternative. No refunds. And there I sit with obviously irrelevant questions like, so do you both want to have kids? Or do you both know how much debt your partner is bringing into this marriage? These are not welcome questions at this point in the game, trust me. One of the things that makes planning a wedding service so difficult is that we have absolutely no idea what people in the Bible did for a wedding. We have lots and lots of people in the Bible who got married, but we have no idea what the ceremony was. The biblical texts, we have no vows, we have no specific wedding prayers, we have no postlude recommendations, we have nothing in the Hebrew Scriptures or the New Testament to tell us how it was that Bible people actually got married. It's not there. So much so that I tell couples when they're planning their wedding, that you're supposed to just help go with what the tradition is here. I have had, in the hundred or so weddings that I have performed, I have had probably 80 couples earlier in the game say, we're going to write our own vows. And my response is always the same, good luck with that. <laughs> and then a few days before the wedding, I'm getting a phone call saying, yeah, you gave us that little pamphlet with vows in it, we're doing number four. <laughs> it's hard to squeeze it in. But the Bible does make one thing clear. Regardless of what happened with the ceremony or the vows or the music, they were times for joy. Weddings were occasions of great joy. Now forgive my rant here when it comes to weddings, but when I approach the wedding at Cana story here in John chapter 2, I have a certain appreciation for the fact that Jesus is annoyed when his mother comes and tells him that the reception venue has just run out of wine. Jesus says, and what's it to you or to me? Some commentators suggest that Mary came to Jesus because Jesus and the disciples were probably responsible for the venue running out of wine. He and his buddies probably had something to do with the sudden wine shortage. It was then that Jesus performed one of his two most famous miracles walking on water and turning water into wine sure the deaf could hear and the blind could see and the lame could walk and good news was proclaimed to the poor even the dead were raised but the real measure of a messiah is can you skip across a lake like a garden path and turn a jug of agua into an unpretentious pinot noir which brings me to the takeaway i believe for today's gospel lesson. The traditional Christian liturgy references this text in the following manner. Indulge me. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the presence of God and these witnesses to join this man and this woman in holy matrimony. The bond and covenant of marriage was ordained by God in creation, and Christ honored this manner of love by his presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It is commended by Scripture to be honored by all people, 
Therefore, it is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in fear of God, for it is a holy estate. These persons present must now come to be joined. If any can show just cause why these two may not be lawfully joined together, let them speak now or hereafter hold their peace. Now, that last little sentence in there, it needs a little, little bit of explanation. This is not designed as the moment where the ex-boyfriend jumps up and says, but I still love her and she loves me. That is not the purpose of showing just cause why these two may not be lawfully married. Historically, that was the moment in which all the peasants and serfs who were waiting for the banquet could raise their hand and say, look, if this family gets together with this family, we are in terrible trouble economically. You can't combine this estate with this estate without serious repercussions on the labor markets in this area. At that point, the officiant would pause and go to the magistrate, and they would literally talk with the families about divestiture so that there wouldn't be a monopoly created within the community where the wedding was taking place. Once I explain that to couples, they're very, very relieved that they can just drop that whole moment of drama from the ceremony. Because if they leave it in, I give it a good, long pause. <laughs> Anyone? Are you sure? It's your last chance. Anyway, Jesus ends up in the wedding ceremony with a footnote. His first miracle as a guest at the wedding in Cana. But says nothing in the wedding service about what the miracle was. I think what he did is extremely important when we consider the presence of Jesus at our ceremonies, in our homes, in our lives. Jesus' first miracle was performed so that the party could go on. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus' first miracle was to ensure that the celebration of joy would continue. And I think that that is a fundamental message regarding the value of your faith in Jesus Christ. Does that faith help your joy continue? I often tell couples, if you are not having fun, you're not doing it right. The point is joy. And by the way, I don't think Jesus' miracle in Cana is an endorsement of alcohol. It's an endorsement of celebration and joy. If your consumption of alcohol is bringing you sorrow, then please stop drinking. <laughs> and let it become the miracle of joy for yourself and those who love you, just a quick aside. I'm concerned more importantly than that for the sake of the church. Not this church. I'm concerned about the church of Jesus Christ because when you look around, people are becoming more and more disinterested in what we do and how we are, and i got to tell you, I can't blame them. Because very few people associate the church with great joy. So I would suggest a church without joy is not the church of Jesus Christ, who performed his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee in order 
for the celebration to continue. Now, it has nothing to do when you think of churches as to what the political orientation of the congregation is one way or the other. Churches on the right, we know, are angry and indignant. And by the way, so are churches on the left. And a lot of churches in the middle have decided not to be angry or indignant, and so they have chosen instead to just be boring. This, my friends, is a problem. It isn't just in Cana where God said God's presence was about joy. The image from Isaiah 62 that was just read talks about how God sees God's people. The image is the groom looking down the aisle to the narthex who sees his bride round the corner and in the first time there she is adorned in her dress with the hair and the makeup and God's reaction is to look at us and say wow Isaiah 62 what were the last couple of verses read you shall be called my delight is in her by the way the word in Hebrew is Hepzibah ever heard the old name Hepzibah that word is my delight is in her and your land is married this name you have heard Beulah (laughs) Beulah means her land is married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married for as a young man marries a young woman so shall your builder marry you and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you. Hepzibah and Beulah, delighted and married. That is God's reaction to us. When was the last time you felt the giddiness of a blushing bride when you think about God's orientation and feeling towards us? When's the last thing, time that that just made you feel joy. What does it mean to us as a congregation that God is intimately concerned about our well-being? What does it mean for us as a congregation that God's presence and miracles are for our joy? Sure, there's a, a lot of stress. We got meals to plan, and we got a cake to design and select, and we have to fuss over those all important chair cover bows. We need to figure out if we really want to hear Sweet Caroline or if we're going to let the DJ even think of playing the chicken dance. But of greatest importance to the church as the bride of Christ isn't whether we select a particular dinner's plated or family style or buffet. The real news for us is God's great, unbounded, unending infatuation with us. And that's why we cry at weddings. And that's why the joy should overwhelm us sometimes to tears, because it is about great, joyful love. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the presence of God and these witnesses for the purpose of joy. 
if we lose that, we're not doing it right. Amen? Amen. Please stand and join with me in the words of the Apostles' Creed, our confession of faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty. 